in all these traditions, you will find uh, different variations of what the Buddhists called as Pratitya Samudapad, where it is described that one half of the binary is intricately entwined with the other half. One does not exist without the other. True does not exist without false. Right does not exist without wrong. Day does not exist without night. Mountains do not exist without valleys. The existence of one is important for the existence of the other. If day disappears, night also will disappear. We will not be able to conceptualize night if day disappears. It is basically in the contrast that we are able to observe night. So in intellectual pursuit, usually what happens is that we think that right is right, wrong is wrong, true is true, false is false. And after a certain point in time, we recognize that one does not really exist without the other. So this entire approach, you know, which is based in the dichotomy of true and false, begins to move away from our system. So why don't I start the conversation today on a topic which actually falls within the domain of post-colonial studies? Uh, I'm pretty much sure that it must have become very evident that the very reason why we are even having this workshop on this particular topic is because our knowledge systems were brutally ransacked um, after 1835. The intervention was quite deliberate and uh, systematic. Now, before the intervention happened, there was also the creation of a particular narrative, very similar to how Iraq was invaded. You know, before the invasion of Iraq, uh, the news was spread that Iraq has weapons of mass destruction. And once the narrative caught on, the invasion happened. And later, of course, it was found out that there weren't any weapons of mass destruction. So before this brutalization of the Indian knowledge system happened, before the eradication of the indigenous educational system happened, there was this very sinister narrative which was actually created on India and Hinduism in particular. And the individual who did this was named James Mill. He was basically a journalist by profession. And uh, in between 1806 and 1817, he, write, he wrote uh, three volumes of this particular book, History of British India. And in the first volume itself, 
he has written seven chapters on hindus and he has divided the hindus left right and center in a nutshell you can say that he created a certain narrative on hindus and hinduism and this narrative over a period of time has become the no- has become the normative narrative it has become the dominant narrative to the extent that you find the reflections of this narrative on discussions on hinduism anywhere you go around the world as well as in india the reflections are found in ncert books also that's a whole different topic altogether and you know i am not going to go into those details because the topic is very very different but why am i bringing this up that is the question that we need to uh refer to while he was castigating the hindus and deriding the hindus he did not leave the guru shishya parampara also he demonized the guru shishya parampara as well and described the system as one where oppression by the guru of the shishya was written all over the place i am going to read a couple of paragraphs uh, from his book from the chapter manners of the hindus and you will realize you know uh the extent of damage that he has done to the narrative he writes quote the condition of the student much more closely resembles that of an european apprentice than that of a pupil in literature he dwells in the house of his preceptor and tends him with the most respectful assiduity he is commanded to exert himself in all acts useful to his teachers and of course performs the part of an assistant in all the offices of religion as he who digs deep with the with the spade comes to a spring of water so the student who humbly serves his teacher attains the knowledge which lies deep in his teacher's mind the quote is all right you know but look at the spin that he has given to this quote upon the student of the priestly order a peculiar burden or distinction is imposed to acquire daily his food by begging i'm skipping a few paragraphs and then he writes again on important occasions as on other occasions the attention of the hindu is much more engaged by frivolous observances than by objects of utility while the directions laid down respecting the instruction of the pupil are exceedingly few and insignificant the forms according to which he must pay his duty to the master are numerous minute and emphatically enjoined and then he goes on and on you know and anyone who's interested in reading the details can look up the chapter manner of the hindus in history of british india volume 1 and you will get the extent of demonization that he has 
gone into. Now, there are many educated Indians, even today, who do not look at this relationship, this very sacred relationship, with any kind of respect. And of course, the times have changed, you know, uh, we have also seen a lot of charlatans as gurus. But today we are going to get into the tradition and basically understand how this parampara, this trad tradition was actually dealt with. Um, what were the observances surrounding this tradition or parampara. What I have done for us today is that I have uh, I have taken some selections from this particular book, Vivek Chudamani. The author is Sri Shankaracharya. And uh, in this particular book, a wonderful relationship between Guru and Shishya is actually described. Now, when we will go into the details of this relationship, there are two things that will become absolutely clear. One is, what are the characteristics of a Shishya? You know, it is commonly asked, how do I find a Guru? And my answer is, that if you will fulfill certain conditions, the Guru will emerge. And if one is fulfilling the right conditions, then one also will come across the right Guru and will not come across any Shaltam. Now, this is extremely important from the perspective of epistemology. I did not uh, watch uh, Pro Professor Jha's uh, presentation in totality, uh, but I saw parts of it. And, you know, and I hope I'm not misrepresenting him when, I'm, when I say this, that he was uh, looking at the intellectual pursuits of epistemology. I'm going to bring another edition to that I'm bring I'm going to bring another layer to that and I am going to speak about the yogic pursuit in the pursuit of knowledge or epistemology I want to clarify or emphasize at this point in time that yogic pursuit of knowledge begins when the subject object dichotomy collapses. Western epistemology is based in a very strict dichotomy of subject and object, subjective and objective. It is not that subject and object are not discussed within our traditions, they certainly are, but particularly the traditions which will be considered yogic. And by that, I mean different schools of Vedanta, Buddhism, Jainism, Sufism. 
you will certainly find discussions where the collapse of the subject object dichotomy or binary becomes extremely important this is a unique characteristic of indian epistemology the yogic pursuit of knowledge actually begins when collapse of dichotomy and binary happens and why is it so mind essentially operates in binaries it essentially operates in dualities and dichotomies according to the yogic tradition there are many many realms of consciousness that are beyond the mind so the mind has to be transcended and binaries have to be transcended and in order for the binaries to get transcended an essential condition is the collapse of binaries so that is why you know in all these traditions you will find uh, different variations of what the buddhist called as pratittu samudpad where it is described that one half of the binary is intricately entwined with the other half one does not exist without the other true does not exist without false right does not exist without wrong day does not exist without night mountains do not exist without valleys the existence of one is important for the existence of the other if day disappears night also will disappear we will not be able to conceptualize night if day disappears it is basically in the contrast that we are able to observe night so in intellectual pursuit usually what happens is that we think that right is right wrong is wrong true is true false is false and after a certain point in time particularly if we are interested in in the in spiritual literature we recognize that one does not really exist without the other so this entire approach you know which is based in the dichotomy of true and false begins to move away from our system it is not that the pursuit of truth collapses you know but the pursuit of truth acquires a very different di- dimension than one which is located or positioned in the binary of right and wrong true and false so this is the kind of epistemology that i am going to talk about and within this context i am going to talk about the characteristics of a seeker and the characteristics of a guru so what are what are this what are some of the characteristics of a student or a seeker as per shri shankaracharya's viveksharamani the first thing that he says is that the student must have vivek 
the capacity or the power to make a discernment and what kind of discernment is he talking about he is talking about nitya anitya vastu vivek what is eternal from what is time bound the distinction the discernment between what is eternal from what is time bound an important condition in our knowledge pursuit many of us are blessed with this a uh, pursuit you know from time to time we begin to understand after certain or after attaining certain maturity that whatever we are doing whatever we are engaging in after a certain point in time is going to disappear it is going to come to an end whatever we are doing on this planet is ephemeral it is transitory it is not long lasting this kind of feeling or understanding usually happens you know when one experiences the death of a significant one or the collapse of a significant relationship we begin to inquire you know into these questions what is real what is eternal is there anything which is eternal or everything is time bound is everything transitory is everything ephemeral and so on and so forth so the first condition the second condition which is interrelated with the first one is vairagya when there is a certain kind of detachment that occurs one does not feel involved in day to day activities it's almost as if one has been consumed by existential angst one is removed from day to day activities and shri shankaracharya says that when in fact you know all yogis say that when a condition like that appears then that con- condition should be nurtured and fostered for a certain period of time in vairagya what also happens is that consciousness which is naturally oriented on the outside begins to turn inwards so instead of seeking knowledge on the outside one begins to look within one begins to explore within and gradually one begins to find out that there is a lot to learn about oneself the whole different book that basically opens up and then there are six different psychological characteristics that are described the first one is sama resolution in the mind 
the mind needs to come to certain peace it needs to find peace with within oneself and needs to take a resolve in that the seeker has to find out what the truth is what the eternal reality is the appearance of which began with the question as discussed in nitya anitya vastu vivek this process is very progressive if you will you know because once this kind of uh, attribute sets in then there are other requirements also that will need to be fulfilled here comes the importance of dhamma comes from the word daman restraint restraint of what organs of perception and organs of action so just like the mind you know before the setting of vairagya is externally oriented these organs are also very attached to the things on the outside and they want to move towards things that are on the outside but they have to be restrained you know just like a tortoise basically brings all his limbs into the shell and rests in peace a very similar kind of activity needs to be performed and that comes to dhamma of organs of perception as well as organs of action the third psychological condition is uparati comes from the word rati rati means attachment it means involvement attachment and involvement with various things on the outside the detachment is a necessary condition uparati you have to remove yourself from the things or the activities that you are attached to or attached with then there is another condition titiksha titiksha is about gaining composure and developing the capacity of remaining unmoved in instances of pleasure as well as pain developing some sort of an equanimity or neutrality if you will then there's a very important condition that needs to be developed within the student shraddha it is loosely translated as faith or trust you know in the in the teachings of the shastra and the teachings of the guru that one may have come in contact with trusting that the principles that are enumerated by them will lead the seeker to the desired end this unshakable shraddha 
is extremely important. And if you will look into uh, the descriptions of different spiritual teachers and even you know, religious traditions, it is said that you must abstain from doubt. Doubt is like a corrosive which spoils the spiritual practice or the seeking of an individual. So Shraddha needs to become absolutely stable. It needs to burn in an unflickering way, if you will. And then the last psychological condition is one of Samadhan, a complete resolve and resolution in the mind. One is absolutely steadfast that he or she is going to pursue the path. There isn't any anxiety within the system. There isn't any flickerings going on in the system. One has attained that stability, if you will. Now, if these conditions are fulfilled by a student. The Shastra says that he or she will find his or her guru for sure. And who is the guru within the tradition? Not an ordinary one. An individual who is a realized soul, who has known Brahma, who has come in contact with Brahma, knows Brahma experientially, does not know Brahma intellectually. So Guru in this tradition is not an ordinary being. He or she is Ved himself or herself. And then there are some other conditions that are also described. Must be well read in the Shastras. You know, I would say that this perhaps was true when our ancient knowledge system was, in, was intact and it had not been assaulted upon. But now you'll find, you know, a plethora of saints and sages and yogis who may not have the knowledge of the Shastras or the intellectual knowledge of the Shastras. They know the Shastras experientially and they know the Shastras in their being. One who does not have Papa is Papa Mukta. Does not have any stain of any kind of sin. Is absolutely spotless. An individual who's not afflicted by desires, has transmuted the desires, has transformed the desires. See, these are very, very important things. If you will keep these things in mind after having fulfilled the conditions that we spoke about earlier, finding the, the real guru will not be difficult. An individual who is calm, who is an ocean of compassion. I repeat, an ocean of compassion 
is compassionate just without any reason. Unconditionally compassionate. And the last characteristic that Sri Shankaracharya describes is a helpful friend to seekers who approach him or her with respect. So, you know, this was about the Guru Shishya Parampara from the spiritual perspective, from the yogic perspective. Most of us here are teachers in our respective professions. So what are some of the things that we can actually follow with our students? And in that matter, I will take help of some of the things that Sri Aurobindo has spoken about. Sri Aurobindo has given three principles of education. The first one is very radical, you know, <clears throat> something on which we must inquire and ruminate. He says, nothing can be taught. You know, usually we teachers are very eager to teach our students. You know, we just want to drill whatever we have learned in our life. We just want to pass them on. We want to transmit all our learnings to the student. Sri is very radical in saying this. He says nothing can be taught. And this is absolutely beautiful because what he says is that knowledge is latent in all of us. It is residing in all of us. And we teachers are basically midwives or we should behave as midwives to the emergence of knowledge which is residing within. So what is it that we should ideally be doing? And this is something, you know, which I've done quite a bit in my life and I've seen positive results of this. Create the right kind of condition. Create conducive atmosphere around the student and allow things to emerge. There's another very important principle, you know, that he talks about. He says that a teacher should take a student from near to far, from what is to what will be. So, you know, it works very well when you approach the student from where he or she is. You know, teaching, in my understanding, is a non-egoic exercise. Usually teachers teach for themselves, whereas this activity is not for oneself. It is for the students. And when it is for the students, you would always want to find out, figure, figure out where he or she is. 
once you will get a sense of where he or she is then very gradually you will be able to take him or her to where you want that individual to be after a period of time you know once again it is basically honoring the inner constitution of the individual see when education comes from without to within from outside to inside it is not education it is training most of us lack this distinction between education and training because of the mechanical world that we have come to inhabit we have become more interested in training people whereas education is once again you know addressing what is within and from within basically to proceed outside the third principle you know that he talks about and we have already touched upon this is that the mind should be consulted consult the mind of the students involve them incorporate them as much as you can things begin to acquire a very different dimension you know i want to read a few lines of his from uh this book the synthesis of yoga in this uh, in this book he has written a chapter called the four aids and in four aids he is describing uh the teacher as well you know as one of the aids in the progress of yoga he writes the teacher of the integral yoga will follow as far as he may the method of the teacher within us he will lead the disciple the disciple through the nature of the disciple you know we discussed that teaching example influence i repeat teaching example influence these are three instruments of the guru but the wise teacher will not seek to impose himself or his opinions on the passive acceptance of the receptive mind these are very important principles these are very very important principles you know particularly when students come to you they are in a very receptive state of mind and and because of the deference that they show it becomes extremely important that we teachers handle them very very mindfully and we do not be mindless in terms of our interaction with them because you know because that relationship because of uh the the cultural context in which we are embedded the parampara still continues you know still students look up to their teachers in a very very differential way and whenever i would say 
we teachers find that kind of a situation that we in in such a situation we really should tread that relationship very very carefully or we should engage in that relationship very very carefully he will throw in only what is productive and sure as a seed which will grow under divine fostering within you know let ideas germinate within the students just throw the seeds once again do not impose do not come to that individual with the force allow the natural process to take over you know these are some of uh, the very very good principles for teaching and education he will seek look at you know look at look at the beauty of the words he will seek to awaken much more than to instruct he will seek to awaken much more than to instruct i always tell my students that they will forget the words you know most of us even if we have been very good in mathematics probably do not remember most of the stuff that we did in the 7th grade right but whatever has been reflected upon whatever has been chewed upon that stays with us and that is the kind of education that we should be thinking about that is the kind of instruction that we need to be speaking about and and if we engage in something like this we are following that parampara that you know that we were talking about see didactic way of teaching is actually a very western form of teaching when christianity was alive and kicking you know then the masses were held the preachers they preached from the pulpit the situation is not very different today you know in the secular world the teachers come to a podium and then they preach from there what is what is the quintessential indian way of teaching dialogical it is dialogical look at all our ancient texts they are all dialogical even the divine you know appeared and had a dialogue with krishna uh, sorry arjuna krishna is not imposing his knowledge on arjuna it's a dialogue there is freedom to question so when a student questions you know he or she is not uh making an up, an affront upon us it's an engagement it's a dialogue that needs to be followed he will give a method as an aid as a utilizable device not as an imperative formula or a fixed routine 
and he will be on his guard against any turning of the means into a limitation against the mechanizing of process his whole business is to awaken the divine light and set working of the divine force of which he himself is only a means and an aid a body or a channel the example is more powerful than the instruction but it is not an example of the outward acts nor that of personal character which is of most importance they have their place and their utility but what will most stipulate aspiration in others is the central fact of the divine realization within him governing his whole life and inner state and his activities the more realized we are the more we will be able to transmit these things to the students once again you know these are not about just words alone but what is the power which basically comes behind the words and that power is only acquired through practice walking the talk becomes very very important you know and in fact the more you will walk less you will need to talk you know this is the kind of influence that shervinder is talking about how do we influence as our, our students students are very very perceptive and they are very uh, you know they are keen observers of the students uh, of the teachers in fact uh, my understanding is that in the first class you know from kindergarten to the post graduate level in the first class a teacher is always tested by his or her students always it's an unconscious process and you know why that happens the students want to have a feel of how far the teacher is going to go with them in terms of the internal support that they are seeking and that is why you know the moment the teacher enters prodding begins sometimes directly and sometimes metaphorically and from my experience i would say that every class is actually or rather every course is made or broken in the first session itself so if you are able to win over your students in the first session itself you are going to have a seamless time and this is the kind of influence you know that that sherwin was talking of, about you know this is the universal and essential element the rest belongs to individual person and circumstance it is this dynamic realization that the sadhak must feel and reproduce in himself according to his own nature he need not strive after an imitation from outside which may be sterilizing 
rather than productive of right and natural fruits. Once again, you know, the, the emphasis comes on the inner. Unfortunately, in post-colonial India, we have lost sight of this. Our education has become extremely externalized. So particularly, you know, for uh, a new institution like Rashtram, which is trying to do new things, it is also important that we figure out what our ancient pedagogy has been. Our ancient pedagogy has been one of interaction and inclusion. And this is something, you know, which, uh, which is followed in village schools even now, even today, where, uh, you know, the, the Western influence is not as much as it is in the cities. Invariably, in primary and middle schools, you will find teachers enter the classroom and begin the class with questions. And, and through this interaction, through question and answer, they start unfolding the class. It is also very creative, you know, only that teacher whose concepts and fundamentals are absolutely clear will be able to engage in this kind of a practice. In fact, you know, teaching for a teacher actually happens outside the class. It's not when you are in the classroom. It is what you have done earlier, what you have done before, how much you have thought about things, how much you have internalized things how much of a creative individual you are in responding to your students. And all these things, once again, I will say, you know, it's part of the Guru Shishya Parampara. Because questions and, and answers are happening in here and now. They are not predetermined questions. They're not predetermined questions. Just out of the blue, some pressing question will come up. And a teacher will only have an answer to the question if he or she has experienced that particular thing or has thought about it. If he or she hasn't, the answer will not be there. And in my understanding, I think there's nothing wrong in saying that I do not know. You know, I'm going to do my research and come back to you. Teaching in humility is very important and it can be very endearing. It's not important that, you know, that we manifest, that we know everything. That is not important. Do we have the humility of saying, well, you know, I have not thought about it. I have not studied this. But I take your question, I'm going to do my research, and I'm going to come back to you. This last two paragraphs, are dead, and then I will stop. Influence is more important than example. Influence is not the outward authority of the teacher over his disciple. 
but the power of his contact of his presence of the nearness of his soul to the soul of another infusing into it even through even though in silence that which he himself is and possesses this is the supreme sign of the master for the greatest master is much less a teacher than a presence pouring the divine consciousness and its constituting light and power and purity and bliss into all who are receptive around him and it shall also be a sign of the teacher of the integral yoga that he does not arrogate to himself guruhood listen to this that he does not arrogate to himself guruhood and very true to his word sure when the abstain from it you know he did not want to be called a guru in a human in a humanly vain and self exalting spirit his work if he has one is a trust from above he himself a channel a vessel or a representative he is a man helping his brothers a child leading children a light kindling other lights an awakened soul awakening souls at at highest a power or presence of the divine calling to him other powers of the divine those students look into their guru in a very very differential way but what is the reason that the guru shishya parampara it is dying in the modern world or it is being you know being reduced to nothing these days uh, students at the college level they think the teachers are you know they're just friends or you know they treated this way i am not sure is it because of the acts and actions of the guru or is it because of the shishya or it is the way the culture is being developing or i am not sure yeah. and i think i i think it is uh, it's the last point uh, that you're raising see this uh, nefarious intervention by the britishers in our culture was made 200 years ago and unfortunately in post colonial india we haven't really uh, neutralized the effect of uh, what was put in place so this narrative is still proliferating and it's still bringing people you know uh, into its clutches and as students come into this kind of narrative in conscious or unconscious manner they basically uh, you know get disconnected from the tradition and what happens in this process is that the sanctity which is there between the student and the and the teacher gets badly fractured it's a it's a very sanctimonious relationship you know we must understand that and perhaps i feel that you know that uh, we teachers will need to take that that uh, that step and maybe you know we'll have to swallow a lot of poison like shiva did if the guru starts feeling this way the shishya i think will already start feeling this way 
This yeah. could be generated the way you have presented. I, I personally feel that, you know, that we need to teach our students with unconditional love. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. It's difficult to practice, you know, but I think more we engage in this, uh, a more transformation will occur. I have I've tested these principles, you know, uh, so I can say that it actually, you know, uh, even today it works. And my testing happened in India, you know, I would not take the name of uh, the institution, but I see that it still works. If we as teachers bring love, affection and compassion towards our students, and if we are able to infuse in them, you know, uh, seeking of knowledge, then they start working with you. And I'm sure you're you know, I'll just give you one example. Yes, sir. It was, it, 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 it was in the, uh, the same institution. Again, you know, I will not take the, neither the name of the student nor the, the name of the place. So I had to teach history, you know, to uh, the students over there. And when I went to the class, I began with the history of that particular place, that particular city. And, uh, you know, and within no time, I had the years of the students. And most of the faculty within that institution would tell me that uh, students are actually not interested in learning. But how do we infuse that, you know? And it reminds me of uh, the principle which I, un I unconsciously applied at that point in time, you know, uh, which we discussed earlier taking the students from near to far, take the students from where they are, you know, to where you want them to be. So make your teaching contextual, see what is going to help them, you know, in their pursuits and their quest. Just in uh, you know, we had the Guru Drona, then he was aware that expert passion, ability and faith. उसके बेसिस पे आप निकालते थे कि इसका स्वभाव क्या है स्वाधर्मा क्या है उसको आगे कैसे जाना उस बच्चे को बताओ तुम्हें यहां से यहां जाना है मछली को तैरना है गिलहरी को कूदना है पेड़ पे बट अब वो जो मॉडल है काफी दूषित सा हो रहा है क्योंकि अब ये जमाना आ गया है कि भाई हर चीज को ब्रॉड बेस्ड एजुकेशन देना है हर एक को ये करना है और यूनिवर्सिटीज में इतने हजारों बच्चे होते हैं तो उसमें ये कांसेप्ट जो पहले सिस्टम था आईडीपी वाला पहले जब छोटे गुरु कुछ कम लोग होते थे उनका फोकस रिलेशन था तो इस मॉडल को कैसे आगे बढ़ाया जाए क्योंकि इसके बिना सर होता नहीं है जैसे आप जितना भी डिजिटल कर लो लेकिन जो होता ना कि टच एंड फील वाला इशू जो होता है और होता क्या है कि टीचर हम लोग कई बार टीचर लेवल पे रह गए गुरु नहीं बन पाए जैसे मैं बताऊं कल अनुराधा जी ने टॉक दिया वो खुद इतनी इंस्पायर्ड थी उनसे बहुत अच्छा लगा आपने कुंदन जी आपने बड़ा अच्छा किया इट वॉज रियली ग्रेट तो इस तरह का इंस्पिरेशन हम कैसे लाएं और जो हमें इंडिविजुअल लेवल पे देना है वो हम ये बड़ा जो कमोडाइज्ड वर्ल्ड हो गया है जिसमें आप मास प्रोडक्शन की बात कर रहे हो देयर आर प्राइवेट यूनिवर्सिटीज हु आर हैविंग 15 20000 स्टूडेंट तो उसमें वो हो नहीं पाता ना एक-एक बच्चे का हम ध्यान रख के कर पाए तो इसमें आपका निर्देशन क्या रहे छोटे क्लासेस का होना बहुत जरूरी है जी जैसे अगर आप नालंदा यूनिवर्सिटी का भी अगर आप रेशियो अगर आप देख लें तो मेरे ख्याल से टीचर स्टूडेंट रेशियो 1:8 था और यहां 
ग्रेजुएट लेवल में जब मैं सोफिया यूनिवर्सिटी में पढ़ा रहा था तो आ, हम लोग अपने क्लासेस में चौदह स्टूडेंट से ज्यादा नहीं लेते थे और अभी मैं हिंदू यूनिवर्सिटी ऑफ अमेरिका में भी मैंने ये ज्वाइन करने के समय में ही मैंने ये कहा था कि मैं चौदह स्टूडेंट से ज्यादा एक क्लास में नहीं लूंगा क्योंकि आप जिस इंटरेक्शन की बात कर रहे हैं अगर अगर हम इसको कमर्शियलाइज कर दें तो ये पूरी परंपरा जो है वो चौपट हो जाती है उसके लिए समय होना बहुत जरूरी है और अगर टीचर को समय नहीं रहेगा तो फिर ये इंटरेक्शन कहाँ होगा तो इनफैक्ट जो जो नई पद्धति लोग लाने की कोशिश कर रहे हैं तो उस पद्धति में भी ये बहुत जरूरी है कि इसका कमर्शियलाइजेशन जो है वो कम से कम किया जाए देखिए हमारे हमारे पुराने समय में अगर हम पुरानी अपनी संस्कृति को अगर हम देखें तो ये पूरा सिस्टम जो है वो स्टेट और कम्युनिटी सपोर्टेड था इंस्टीट्यूशंस जो हैं वो अपने लिए रेवेन्यू जनरेट नहीं करते थे तो हमको ये वापस जो है उस उसमें जाना पड़ेगा कि जो जो टीचर्स हैं उनका कंसर्न वो विशुद्ध बिल्कुल शिक्षा सही होना चाहिए और और बाकी चीजें जो हैं वो जो इंस्टीट्यूशन है या जो कम्युनिटी है उसको उसका ध्यान रखना पड़ेगा तो एक बात ये कि खाली टीचर ही पढ़ा रहा है लेकिन क्या वो खाली टीचर का अहंकार नहीं है तो क्या है भाई ये बच्चा भी दूसरे बच्चे को पढ़ा सकता है कितना मिनिमम करें जो खाली टीचर को पढ़ाना है कितना हम डिजिटल मोड में पढ़ाए कितना हम पीयर टू पीयर लर्निंग को बढ़ावा दें तो कल के जो होता ना कि वॉट गॉट यू हेयर वॉन्ट टेक यू देयर तो जो अच्छाइयां उनको ग्रहण कर लें और नई टेक्नोलॉजी के माध्यम से उनको एनबेड करते हुए जैसे मैं अपनी क्लास में व्हाट्सएप ग्रुप बनाता हूँ एक उनका लर्निंग पोर्टल बनाता हूँ और जो आज जैसे मैंने पढ़ाया बच्चों से कहते भाई तुम उसमें बताओ तुम्हें क्या ऐड करना है तो इन दिस वे हाउ वी कैन इंस्पायर स्टूडेंट और टीचर कर टीचर का रोल बड़ा मिनिमम सा हो जाए मतलब इसमें क्या है कि जो जिसको टच एंड फील से करना है उस पर हम करें और बाकी हम कैसे टेक्नोलॉजी और बाकी डिजिटल विद्या और बच्चों की खुद की पावर को इस्तेमाल करते हुए जैसे मैं जब फ्रांस जाता हूँ पढ़ाने तो उसमें डेढ़ घंटा मैं पढ़ाता हूँ फिर डेढ़ घंटे बच्चे पढ़ाते हैं तो वॉट आई वुड लाइक टू से मे बी हमें अगर हम सोचें कि पुरानी जो गुरु शिष्य परंपरा वाला ही होगा तो कई बार लगता है कि इस तरह शिक्षा इतनी मतलब इतनी कॉस्टली है अमेरिका में अगर हम उस लेवल पे आएंगे तो इंडिया की शिक्षा भी काफी कॉस्टली हो सकती है तो शेल वी नॉट ट्राई टू डिस्टर्ब मॉडल जो है ना डिस्ट्रप्शन इसमें क्रिएट करने की जरूरत है सर तो ऐसा मुझे मे, मे, मेरा ये मानना है कि ऑन द स्पॉट क्रिएटिव होना बहुत जरूरी है जी जैसे आप जो ये बात कह रहे हैं मैं बाकी स्टूडेंट्स को तो एंगेज नहीं करता हूं लेकिन हाँ मेरे क्लासेस जो हैं वो बहुत डायलॉजिकल होते हैं तो इनिशियल जो हम हम लोग के यहाँ भी जो है वो ग्रेजुएट लेवल पे तीन घंटे के क्लासेस होते हैं तो एक आध घंटा जो है मैं मैंने टॉपिक को अनफोल्ड कर दिया और उसके बाद फिर क्लास को खोल देता हूँ कॉन्वर्सेशन के लिए डायलॉग्स के लिए तो इनफैक्ट मेरे क्लासेस जो है वो कभी तीन घंटे में नहीं खत्म होते हैं रिचा जी इज ये वो चार घंटे साढ़े चार घंटे कभी कभी पांच घंटे पर्टिकुलरली अभी जब ये ऑनलाइन चीजें चल रही हैं क्योंकि फिजिकल स्पेस में तो ये होता है कि दूसरी क्लास आने वाली है इसमें तो वो भी कंस्ट्रेंट नहीं है तो 
तो मेरा मेरा ये मानना है कि हम हम लोगों को ऑन द स्पॉट क्रिएटिव होना पड़ेगा और अल्टीमेटली अगर हम ये गोल रखेंगे कि शिक्षा अच्छी और सुदृढ़ कैसे हो सकती है जी तो फिर हम उसको अचीव कर लेंगे उसको और बहुत क्रिएटिव तरीके से करेंगे यू नो देर वॉन्ट बी एनी फॉर्मूला बट आई थिंक इफ इफ द इंटेंशन इज राइट बी एबल टू अचीव इट बहुत बहुत जल्दी कर लेंगे हम लोग तो मेरा मेरा ये मानना है one is that uh, you told the dual nature do you mean to say that we have to accept the this when there is a truth untruth also should we accept it and the second thing is i, I was not having the clarity on how a faculty should inter you told that before going to a class a faculty should internalize themselves so the, i could not uh, get that point of internalizing ourselves and i have uh, these two questions sir See, in in quest for truth, what happens? You know, the distinction between truth and falsehood that itself disappears. The question itself becomes moot, and just what remains is non-dual truth. You know, the truth shines without falsehood. So, you know, that's the that's the collapse of binaries that I'm talking about. And also because this understanding or knowledge is is beyond mind and beyond speech and beyond binaries, it also becomes very difficult, you know, to actually articulate it. But it is something. It's something which can be felt, which can be experienced, which can be transmitted. Before going to any class, uh, the faculty has to internalize themselves. Was uh, ah, yeah. you told that we have to be much. internalized and i could not get the point what do you mean to say that we have to internalize ourselves as a faculty yeah not not mm. internalize ourselves you know but what i'm saying is that there should be such a clarity on the subject matter you know outside the classroom that when we are within the classroom we don't really have to you know seek for any kind of book support it just it just comes to us naturally it's so ingrained within ourselves you know within the indian tradition there's a there's a phrase which is used atmasat you know internalized to such an extent that you have you have become one with your knowledge so once again you know the distinction between the seeker and the sought has disappeared and what you are teaching has become part of you it has become an integral part of uh, your own existence to such an extent that even if you are woken up from sleep you know you will just articulate it so that is that's the kind of work that you know that i was saying that is very helpful in teaching and you know and as teachers the more we do this the better it will be uh for for the kind of pedagogy that you know that we are trying to perpetuate here.